Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sarah Rodriguez about her fascinating new book, The Love Surgeon, A Story of Trust, Harm, and the Limits of Medical Regulation. Sarah Rodriguez, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, So I am um, a trained in the history of medicine, and I teach at Northwestern University, um, where I teach the history of medicine to both medical students as well as undergraduate students. And I also teach on uh, bioethics as well. And my research interest and my teaching interests then um, combine as far as, well, my research interests and my teaching interests um, combine and overlap, and that I'm interested in women's the history of women's reproductive health as well as the history of the uh, ethics of clinical care and the ethics of clinical research, the history of both of those two. So how did those, um, those interests lead you to write The Love Surgeon? So I learned about The Love Surgeon actually when I was still in graduate school. One of my professors, um, Sharon Wood, mentioned this doctor in Ohio to me, and I kind of kept it in the back of my head. And I read about, um, I started doing a little bit of research about him. And I became more interested in it because the initial story about Bert is that he did this surgery that he came up with on his own that does not appear to have been used by anybody else on women after they gave birth because he thought women were made wrong, basically for missionary position, heterosexual sex. And I thought, how did this happen? How could he do this? Um, for so long and not be stopped. Um, and then I became more interested because it's a bit more messy of a history than what I just said. And the, being a historian, the messiness mm-hmm. of history is what's so interesting. So uh, that, and that's a, the more I sort of looked into it and the more layers there were to this um, is what kept me kind of interested in finally deciding that this is a lot. There's enough, there's enough here that there could be actual book about it. So maybe we could start by just backing up a bit, and if you could tell our listeners, who is this guy, James Burt? So James Burt was an obstetrician-gynecologist who practiced his whole career um, in Dayton, Ohio. He was a very popular um, gynecologist and obstetrician. He delivered a lot of babies during his time. And at some point in the probably around the mid-60s, 1960s. Um, he practiced from the late 1950s through 1989, early 1989. But sometime probably around the mid-1960s, um, he began uh, sort of altering a bit an episiotomy repair. Now, an episiotomy is the cut um, surgeons, or excuse me, gynecologists, obstetricians would make during the um, labor of a woman. So when the baby's head is about to be delivered through the vaginal canal, some physicians made a cut um, uh, to expand the opening of the vagina to better enable the baby to come out. This was a very common procedure in the United States in the 60s and 1970s. Um, But birth then on the repair of that, because you need to sew it back up once the baby's been delivered, started making some alterations that over about the next couple of years, next decade or so, became much more involved than just the sewing up of the repair. And he began making some uh, more additional, pretty um, pretty detailed, I'm going to say, and pretty extensive 
alterations to the episiotomy repair over time um, doing this. Uh, and his reasons for doing so were he thought he was better enabling women to enjoy sex after giving birth. Um, that his, his idea was that um, women's bodies, he was essentially correcting women's bodies. Uh, and that at some level, he starts saying things like women's bodies are not made correctly for a particular type of heterosexual sex, particularly the missionary position. And he felt by making these adjustments to episiotomy repair, he was improving upon the female body for, for that sort of activity. So what kind of adjustments was he making in this? Did he call it love surgery? He did. So he ends up calling it both surgery of love as well as love surgery um, over time. Uh, and he, so in addition to making the opening of the vagina um, smaller when he did the episiotomy repair, he actually changed the angle of the direction of the vagina. So it's, it was more pointed down. And he did this by cutting um, a muscle that supports the vagina. For anyone in, um, familiar with Kegel exercises, when you do a Kegel exercise, uh, you're squeezing the muscle that he cut. Um, and then he also circumcised, he added circumcision of the clitoris, which is removing the foreskin of the clitoris. So the clitoris is still there, but it's the foreskin that's removed. So those are the sort of major components that he did. So he essentially redirected the um, vagina, uh, the direction of the vagina, as well as um, cut a muscle to, um, and then remove the, the clitoral hood of the clitoris. He might not have done the latter to all women. That's a bit unclear, but that was a component of the surgery as well when he kind of sees that he's sort of perfected it, which is by the mid-1970s. That seems like a pretty drastic surgery. And beyond the sort of scope of episiotomy repair, I think we could say too. Like initially, that's where he claims he started it from, but obviously it's a bit more involved than sewing up the, the cut um, of an episiotomy. Um, can you say a little bit more about how, how was the development of the surgery? What about it was normal? you know, like within the normative surgical development, I think it's it's the term that you use. And then in in what ways was it obviously out of bounds, even for the time? So one thing that's normal about how surgeries develop is many surgeries develop through experiential practice. Um, So surgeons might uh, try a different suture or try a different technique or notice that if they cut a different way that they have a better outcome. So some of those, they can actually, a surgeon might make a change and then see that the patient who they made the change upon maybe had a faster healing time or um, had less complications, that there's some better outcome by this change. Oftentimes, maybe they'll do it on a couple more patients and then maybe start talking about it with other surgeons. So this experiential learning about surgery, experiential change about surgery is a really normal way of surgeries developing um, and not necessarily seen as making a new surgery. Sometimes they go that route, but sometimes it's just maybe a tweak within an existing surgery. So in that sense, what Bert was doing was pretty normal for how surgeries develop. It's, he's using his experience. I will say when he started making his change to episiotomy repair, um, he was he claims that some women he'd done it upon, and, and I should say he's doing this when women, after they've given birth, he's not asking explicit consent to be doing this, but then 
to do an episiotomy or episiotomy repair in the 1960s and 1970s, you would not have gotten a consent anyway. So in that sense, this is also normal for what he was Mm -hmm. doing. But to back up to his surgery, he's making these changes and he's not telling the women he did anything different. And he's claiming that the women that are coming to him and saying, hey, my sex with my husband is actually better after giving birth than it was before. So he's taking this information and he's claiming women are telling him, and that's then he's sort of furthering his surgery along in that sense. So his basis, how he goes about um, developing the surgery based on making a change, seeing that outcome is somewhat better, different, um, and then continuing along that path, that's a fairly normal practice. I'd say where Bert's practice deviates dramatically from surgical development in general as a, as a normative practice mm-hmm. is his idea that women's bodies were somehow made wrong. So, and it's not just a particular patient who's maybe having a particular problem. At one point, he basically says all women's bodies are essentially made incorrectly. So he's seeing basically the female body is needing correction, not a female body. Um, and that mm-hmm. to me is a big difference where he sort of goes dramatically different on normative surgical development. Did he promote the surgery that way? How did he how did he promote it? I that doesn't seem like that would be very convincing. Hey, all women, <laughs> your bodies are made wrong. Come so, see me. Yeah, like I've got the cure for um so, yeah, so what he ends up doing, he develops this surgery largely in his obstetric patients. And by the but by about mid 1970s, 19 mid to late 1970s, he's he feels like it's developed to the point where he can now essentially market it as a standalone surgery. Uh, And that's what he ends up doing is telling women, hey, there's a surgery he's now calling love surgery or surgery of love. um, And he's offering it as an elective surgery, essentially. Uh, He's doing it as, but he's advertising it more as a sexual benefit to the woman. So that's how he's promoting the surgery is it'll improve your sex life, essentially. And where where did he promote this? So, I mean, I, he was trying to get things published in the peer-reviewed literature. He, it also seems like he was just trying to get general media attention. Can you tell us a little bit more about what his strategy was for attracting patients? So he uh, is on the Donahue show early on, um, which for those of you who aren't old enough to remember, the Donahue show is a big uh, – syndicated television show where um, Phil Donahue interviewed people, um, kind of like an Oprah-ish type of show. And it actually originated in Dayton, Ohio. So he he was on that, which was a big deal. Uh, He had um, articles about him in a couple of popular magazines like Playgirl. Um, He was at one point interviewed on both local radio as well as a couple of national, like there was an LA program he was on. So he's getting some press that way. He also appears to have been uh, sort of working with press agents to try to get the, or sorry, PR sort of department um, to kind of get the word out about his surgery as an elective surgery that would improve the sex lives of women he was claiming. How did the medical establishment respond? So this, I will say, is one of, I think, the interesting most interesting to me parts of this book, because when I went into it, the sort of popular media reports on it were very much, you know, the local doctors did nothing. And 
that's not true. Um, they did a lot of things, but they weren't necessarily in the public eye what they were doing. And this gets into the sort of trickiness of medical regulation and peer review and doctors regulating themselves. A lot of what they did was sometimes the very basic sort of form of medical regulation or medical peer review rather, which is a doctor doesn't like what other doctors doing. And so they don't refer patients to him or her. And that definitely happened with Bert. Um, There was also cases uh, where specific patients would talk to another doctor about the surgery and the possibility of having it. And that doctor would say, I don't think that's a good idea to go that surgery. So that's another way they were acting um, to sort of contain what he was doing. Finally, most dramatically and probably more, uh, most dramatically was um, the local medical society, as well as some local OB-GYNs pushed the, both the hospital where he mostly operated, which was St. Elizabeth, as well as the, um, a local medical society uh, created a essentially a, a warning, I will say, by having the hospital create a special consent form to have the surgery, um, which that was not common in the late 1970s to have a s- surgery-specific consent form, especially one that said things like, this is not a standard surgery, this has not undergone peer review, which is what the consent form said. So the consent form was very... Um, in one sense, it was a very direct of saying, this is not a standard surgery you're about to undergo. It hasn't undergone peer review. So in some ways, it was a very direct sort of um, uh, consent form. But in other ways, like I say in my book too, you have to understand what it why it matters that there, this hasn't undergone peer review or what it means to say a surgery isn't standard. So while in some ways, it was really direct to the patient saying, hey, what you're about to undergo is not sort of a typical surgery you have to understand sort of the medical language of things like peer review and standard to get what they were saying. That said, it was a pretty profound thing that they were doing of making him have a surgery-specific consent form. In addition, the local medical society of Montgomery County uh, in Dayton, Ohio, um, they also had a, appears they ran an ad sort of um, suggesting the surgery wasn't necessarily the best uh to be used as well as if somebody called the County society and asked about the surgery, they actually had basically the same statement as what the consent form for the hospital was using, which was has undergone peer review. This is not a standard surgery. So while it's not maybe explicitly saying we don't recommend this surgery by having that language of not peer reviewed, not standard, they're essentially saying this is not a surgery we recommend. And so is that the limits of medical regulation in your title? (laughs) Uh, I think the limits of medical regulation for me is a lot of doctors actually did a number of things, some of which were quite quite forward-thinking, I would say, or quite bold in some ways. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of limitations what a physician can do. Some of the limitations are time limitations, time-bound. A physician has to know that this particular patient had this particular surgery and these bad outcomes are because of that. That can sometimes take time and you need to see more than one patient with it. So sort of accumulating that this is not a good surgery isn't necessarily something that can happen rapidly. It might take time to accumulate that much evidence across patients. To me, the other big limits of medical regulation, though, are too, is... um, 
like even when you have a surgeon like this where there's a lot of people saying this person should be you know at least contained or curtailed um, with what they're doing but sort of to me the, the limits of medical regulation are even when a physician maybe is challenging what they see as an abusive or unethical or unprofessional practice that there's this 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 challenge could take time it could take time to gather the evidence they might feel like they don't really know what's going on. So they might be hesitant to take steps toward um, saying something. There's also the very real fear of lawsuits by the physician they're challenging. Um, So in a way, a lot of the the medical limitations or the limits of medical regulation to me are, one, there's some limits with what a physician feels like he or she can do. And then two, how long it can take to have some actions actually happen toward the physician to, to limit and or end what they're doing. How did women respond? I mean, I'm assuming he had some patient, you know, some patients that loved the love surgery and a lot that were harmed by it. Um, I'm just wondering what the reaction was. I know you mentioned quite a bit of moral distress among the nurses who see what's going on and feminist groups who um, react to what, a little bit to what he's doing. Yeah. So the so yes, there are some nurses who raise uh, raise some deep concerns with the nursing staff at the hospital where he operated, which was Saint Elizabeth. Um, and also, like you just said, there are some uh, sort of feminist health activists in the nineteen seventies. They also raise concern about the surgery, uh, in particular that they see it as a very sexist surgery because, again, he thinks all women are basically made wrong for heterosexual sex. Um, as far as the patients go, they're in at least sort of publicly coming out and saying they supported the surgery or they thought it was a great thing that happened to them. There are some uh, interviews that happened um, with those women in the 1970s, a couple that come out in the late 80s after he's um, gone to trial for malpractice. Um, but for the most part, some of the women who are saying that they had some adverse outcomes really feel um, like their trust was really profoundly betrayed. So I think in addition to having their bodies, some women had some pretty profound complications. In addition to those very, pro- very um, challenging complications, painful complications, a lot of these women also very much felt betrayed by their physician as well as the larger medical establishment by not sort of stepping in and not allowing him to do this surgery. So in your book, in your book, you interweave the story of Janet Phillips with the story of what happened? Sort what happens to Bert? Sort of the rise and fall of his love surgery. Could you tell us a little bit about um, Janet Phillips and what happened to her? So Janet Phillips um, went to Bert uh, in the early 1980s. Um, she was a uh, um, looking for somebody to give a, another piece of a, a second sort of an opinion that she needed a, a hysterectomy, um, and she went to Bert for that that other opinion about that. And she ended up having a hysterectomy with him, but he also ended up um, doing love surgery upon her uh, as well as the hysterectomy. And she, um, I decided to use her story because she's the reason I find her so compelling is she's basically the first successful lawsuit against him that actually goes to trial. There's a couple of women who try to sue him 
in the 1970s for malpractice, but it does, they don't, they don't actually go far enough to actually get to trial. She is the first to successfully go to trial. Um, and her story I find to be compelling because she was a pretty brave woman to, uh, go forward with with this and to have to speak about some of the pain she was going through with the surgery publicly and to um, bring forward the lawsuit against him. So I interweave her story with the Burt story to give a, to have it not solely be focused on him, but to show that there are other people obviously involved in the story. And to me, she's a central sort of plays an incredibly central role in this story because again, she's the first one who, um, is able to legally challenge him and go to trial with it. And even though her trial doesn't, uh, doesn't um, end how she would have hoped, I think it would have ended that initial trial. It does, it does um, bring other women sort of forward with her story. Uh, and they also end up suing him and then suing the hospital too. So if other women heard her story and sort of recognized what had happened to them, how did she find out what happened, what had happened to her? She, uh, one of the things with James Burt was he apparently had a very, um, solid, reassuring bedside manner. So a number of women, even when they were experiencing problems post love surgery, which for a good deal of them, they didn't know they'd undergone. And so they were, they, they just sort of assumed their problems were because of either delivery or some other surgery they'd had. So they weren't clear that this was because of a surgery. They didn't really understand that they'd undergone. He was very reassuring and Um, uh, and oftentimes women stayed with him for a number of years, uh, because they, they liked his reassuring. He also seems though, in addition to the reassuring, he also seems to have been sometimes used some sort of scare tactics with the women, like, you know, other surgeons aren't as good as I am, or they're not going to understand that the surgery is more complicated than they can do, et cetera. So that he kind of made them fearful oftentimes of going and seeking another physician because he, he basically was like, I know what I'm doing and they don't essentially, um, Phillips though, at a certain point, uh, is, keeps having repeated infections and keeps having pain and he does not seem to have an answer for them. So she does stop going to him and eventually she ends up going and seeing two other, um, ob uh, one of whom then actually, um, undergoes some, some actually sort of corrective surgeries with her. So she essentially finds out because she finally seeks another physician, um, opinion and help and care. Um, what, so what happens, can you tell us a little bit about what happens to Bert? I think this is going back to your, what, what, what's the limits of medical regulation question? What ends up happening with James Bird is Janet Phillips and a couple of the other women who see that they have a similar story, um, because after Phillips goes and sees this, um, an OB-GYN, she also then goes and sees an attorney. And this particular attorney had also been a nurse, which I think was probably helpful in her understanding sort of the medical complications that were going on with these women. But a number of women then start coming to this particular attorney. And this attorney, uh, Mary Lee Sample, um, as she says, she's trying to complain to everybody she can about that Bert should uh, stop practicing. And actually, by the late 1980s, as far as we can tell, Bert probably wasn't practicing love surgery anymore. But he still had his medical license. Um, so Sample and the women that she's representing decide to go public essentially, and they choose to be on a nationalized um, show that's kind of like a, oh, a reviewer kind of called it a sort of a 
hyper kind of version of 60 minutes. So they go on this national show um, and they start talking and that's actually what sort of starts the ball rolling for sort of the limiting of, of Bert's medical practices, this national exposure on national TV to say what these complications are that these women are having from this surgery. That's also how a number of other women then become aware of, they see this program and then they come aware of, wait, I had surgery by this man and I'm having these complications. Maybe it's also because of this surgery. So a number of women become aware um, of what happened with them because of they see this. Importantly, too, Burke gets exposed on national television. That's in the fall of 1988. And like I just said, that kind of is what starts moving the ball rolling very rapidly. Have the state medical board start investigating Burt. They launch an investigation. They propose a hearing. Um, by, but by January of 1989, instead of going through the hearing, which would have made um, he, James Burt would have had to have been very public then about a lot of things that he didn't want to be because he was being sued, um, he decides to just voluntarily rescind his, his license. Can you say a little bit more about how state medical boards work and how they're supposed to work to, to regulate? So physician? state medical, oh yeah, so state medical boards are, based, are, are the overseers of um, a physician being able to practice. Uh, and they, um, they are supposed to then, that, that is essentially the, the medical regulation of boards can um, limit a physician's practice, they could suspend it, um, they could maybe suspend their ability to prescribe drugs, so that they're the board who then basically is the oversight for physicians. And each state has their own board. So it's not a federal, it's, a, it's at a state level with the, with the, with the boards. Of, and they're the ones who, um, again, innate or allow um, the licensing of physicians and or can either take it away or, again, like I said, could somehow sort of um, limit the practice, not, not be able to prescribe drugs, for example, or perform a surgery, or et cetera. Uh, and that's the role of state boards. Historically, um, state boards have largely uh, been seen as slow acting in sort of response to um, somebody maybe raising a concern. Also, historically, concerns are most often raised by patients and not by other physicians which also to me is one of the limits of medical regulation. If medicine is a peer-reviewed process, hopefully more physicians would be talking about, hey, this physician's doing something I think should be investigated. So why did it take so long for the board to start looking at BERT? If, if all of the physicians, if the physicians were taking out ads, warning people and demanding that they, he use a special consent form, yeah. Right. Yeah. Why did it take another? Because they're doing that in the late 1970s. And so the state board claims that the county medical board never said anything to them. And even though this has been a long time now and, you know, he doesn't have a license, I still don't have access that it's not public, whatever happened with the board, um, other than other than you can see on there, like he had his license suspended or taken, sorry, he, he rescinded his license in January, 1989. So I don't actually know if the board investigated earlier, if they didn't, like I said, the County Medical Society says that they told the board by the late 1970s, hey, you should be looking into this guy, but they claim to have not, no record of that happening. So it's a bit unclear when they started looking at him other than, um, 
They claim that they started looking at him in the late 1980s uh, based on a complaint by a state um, legislator who had a, uh, who had a, um, someone in his district say something about the surgery too. So there, there are a number of people raising complaints and issues and concerns with Bert. Definitely by the TV show time in, the, in late 1988, they had launched an investigation. But how much they were doing before that is the historical record is a bit unclear and or not public. <laughs> um, so how does um, how does Bert's story kind of track the development about bio the development of bioethics or clinical ethics in general? Like, is it because it seems in some ways it's like this is a standard whistleblower. This is a whistleblower story, you know, and nobody cares until it blows up in the media and then. But it, but it, you know, it it might complicate that narrative in in other ways too. So, you could, I don't know, just tell us what's going on in the world of clinical ethics while Bert is is doing his love surgery. So, I mean, right now, I think for many of us, like if we think of anything about clinical ethics, we might think consent, 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 right? If you need to get consent for things, well, in the nineteen seventies, consenting for stuff was still not a common practice. And in particular, basically for women going in to, let's say, give birth, essentially when you entered the birthing room or entered the hospital, you'd sort of consented, if you will, to what happens next. And so they weren't, uh, it wasn't sort of, you'd ask for every sort of procedure, you would just sort of assume, okay, you're here to have a baby, you're, you know, whatever happens next, you've agreed to. Um, so consent as, a, as an issue really starts growing, I'd say, in the 1980s. This individual consent really starts growing in the 1980s. So again, when I first entered this, this history of BERT and started looking at it, I really thought consent was going, this was, a, this was a total issue about the clinical ethics of consent and that that didn't happen and that's the big problem. Whereas um, I kind of think that that's in some ways a red herring <laughs> now because that's, consent was just not being done by most practitioners in the 1970s. Um, and in fact, there's even evidence to say that even though episiotomy itself has gone down now, that you know through probably the 1990s, early 2000s, that wasn't necessarily being consented for. So that to me is the kind of red herring, if you will. And the, the bigger issue is that this is about um, issues about abuse within medicine and um, sort of thinking larger structural changes that have to change to encourage physicians uh, that they can say something about a physician um, that they're finding problems with um, and, and to, to have a safety that they can do that safely, but to know that, that's, that that is something that they can do safely and that they should be doing a more active job with it. So that, to me, it's the consent isn't so much the issue as this is a larger issue about particularly male doctors um, and issues of female patients and issues of uh, um, mistreatment or outright, I mean, outright abuse, but also even just more um, mistreatment and disrespect. What, what lessons do you think we can learn from James Burt? Because there are some ways in which he's obviously uh, an outlier, an exceptional case, um, could be a horror story, but there are in, in other ways, like you just said, um, you know, maybe he, maybe he's just kind of an extreme version of certain attitudes in medicine 
in general. Yeah. So I'd say Bert in some ways is obviously an outlier. I mean, um, his ideas about the sort of extreme ideas about women and their bodies is a, hopefully an outlier. Um, they're all made wrong essentially. But to that said, um, there still is, there still is historically an institutional power that men within medicine have had over women and their bodies. And I think that's a, that, that is not the outlier. <laughs> so him being an extreme case, yes, but him sort of being a this idea about institutional power again, men have had within medicine, particularly over female patients, um, you know, and and the fact that so much of medicine then and that this that it can be abused then by men in power because there's the secrecy of the exam room and the operating room by the delivery room where that can play out. Um, and that women, too, when we talk about medicine and this abuse, that particularly for the women with the love surgery, like I've said, a lot of them didn't understand that something different had been done to their bodies. And so having that trust in the physician, having that really be abused because their bodies had something had happened that they didn't understand or they didn't know and they didn't connect. So I, I noticed that the book has, um, it has this really interesting appendix, a list of questions to ask if considering an elective surgery. Um, I, I have never seen anything like this in uh, a, his, a history of medicine monograph. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what it is and why it's there and how it relates to the rest of the book. I've decided to put this appendix in with sort of questions to ask about surgery and when they have surgery or whether the surgery is in um, uh, your sort of best interests. Um, as an outgrowth of this book, because to me, it's one, I mean, obviously we go to physicians because we trust them. And for the most part, for the vast majority of time, that's, that trust is well-placed. But just to be clear about why a surgery is being performed and if there's another alternative, because I, I feel like with the story of James Burt and his surgery, his surgery was so much about him and his sort of thinking about women and their bodies. It really wasn't about the sort of individual women and their needs. So it's a way to just encourage patients to sort of think about surgery and um, if there is another alternative to the surgery, but to, to raise these questions before you have surgery and while you're still thinking about the surgery to make sure that you totally understand what the surgery is about. And if this is something that is still a new surgery, um, something they've performed a lot. So this it's, it's, it's encouraging, I guess, more activism for the patient part of them uh, to, to just ensure they understand the surgery and to ensure that this is, this is what is best for them, um, for what they have, and that maybe there are some alternatives. And I, I put this in there partly also because surgery, I think, in some level in this country, at least, has become so normative that, and, and we think of surgery as being an endpoint, right? That if I go and have this surgery, it's going to, whatever's happening with me, I'm going to be fixed and it's all better. That's not necessarily true. And not, not, not just meaning maybe you have complications, which is certainly a possibility with surgery that it might not but it also could be that this might be a step and it's step one and there's 10 more steps. So surgery isn't necessarily an end point. It might actually be a beginning. So to understand surgery as being perhaps part of a continuum and not a fix. But then I will say I was hesitant to put it in uh, 
because to me, one of the lessons of the Burt story is that um, this, this can't just be about patients asking questions, right? This also has to be about physicians asking questions about each other and about what they're doing uh, and being able to safely do that and comfortably do that and to be encouraged to do that. Um, because we've, we've unfortunately seen a number of physicians more recently than Bert as well. And I'm thinking about um, uh, the George Tyndall, who was the USC gynecologist, or we can think about uh, Larry Nasser, who was the um, OB-GYN or gynecologist for the gymnasts in Michigan, right? We've, we've seen this sort of play out where there are, there are physicians who unfortunately do do take advantage of their patients, are abusive with their patients, exploitive of their patients, et cetera. So like I said, I went to be, I think it's important to ask these questions. I really do as part of the process for patients to totally understand what is happening, why someone's suggesting this, if there are alternatives. But I was hesitant because again, one of the lessons to me is this shouldn't just be on the part of the patient doing this activism. There should be structural support um, to make changes across the board about thinking about um, enabling physicians to more safely again come up and say, I think something weird is going on with physician X and I'm not sure. And I, I think the surgery is maybe uncalled for um, and having that be more of a structural change. So, it, I mean, it seems like a lot of things, like there have been um, cultural and structural changes since James Burt was sort of promoting his love surgery. So, I mean, patient autonomy, the idea that women would come into childbirth with a birth plan or ask a bunch of questions about different surgical procedures. Um, what kinds of change, what hasn't changed that much since James Burt um, res- re- resigned his license? Um, or what 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 changes might you like to see? So I think one of the things that to me about this book and about, you know, there have been changes, but what, what this book brings forward about some changes that still need to be um, brought forth is really educating patients, excuse me, physicians, whether they're in medical school, um, as well as sort of as once they're out practicing, is what does it look like to recognize uh, a physician as doing something that is outside the standard of care, that is possibly exploitive, that is even possibly abusive to their patients? And then how do you go about educating on how do you go about actually trying to advocate for the patients, advocate to have this physician be um, uh, looked at by the medical board? And also then have it be that the medical board can look at a physician and have it be done in a way um, that uh, is perhaps quicker than sometimes happens now, um, as well as I, I, I do think there needs to be some consideration um, uh, about how transparent those investigations are as well, um, as well as to think that maybe sometimes investigation doesn't necessarily mean that someone is doing something like investigation equals bad. It, it should also be investigation can also be seen as how can we improve and that that also needs to be emphasized too. So Yes, there's been a lot with consent on the patient end. What I'm thinking is I think now there needs to be a bit more on, on the education part of students as well as clinicians on, okay, this is not just about protecting you from being a malpractice. You also have a responsibility as a physician in a peer community that relies on peer review 
at varying levels of what that looks like here at the clinical level, you have a responsibility then to be observant and to say something as well. It's, it certainly seems like, um, you know, we've gotten more litigious with, yeah, with, um, with medical errors and, and things like that. Um, I wonder, what do you think about the role of sort of self-regulation, like through medical boards versus the role of the, the law? I think the, one of the things I think I found so interesting with this book is, you know, going in and thinking this is just about the board's doing. Well, no, it, it actually, this sort of regulation of medicine is actually much larger than just physicians sitting in a room and a board, like discussing this. It's also patients. It's also the media. It's also legislators. It's also lawsuits. So it's a, there's multiple actors that are involved in medical regulation. And in some ways, I think that should also be uh, made more clear to people as well. Well, Sarah, we've taken up a lot of your time. What are you working on now? Uh, so one of the things I'm working on now is actually the history of hysterectomy, um, and particularly the uptake of minimally invasive hysterectomy in the late 80s, early 1990s. So a bit more recent history than um, BERT, but also a bit overlapping. And this, this extends upon my interest, obviously, in surgery and how surgeries develop and how surgeries are taken up or not taken up. Because uh, one of the things I think is interesting with BERT is why didn't surgeons take it up, the surgery, um, versus, again, why then would they take up another surgery? So sort of tracing those two things, I think, are, are interesting. And so my next piece is on, uh, I'm, again, I'm working on a history of hysterectomy, particularly, in the, I'm going to say, since the 1970s. Well, that sounds fascinating. That's uh, another another great project. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, how far are you along on it? Oh, really early. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, really early. <laughs> so, well, I, I will look forward to hearing more about that in the years to come. Um, I want to thank you, Sarah, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, this was fantastic, and I, I greatly appreciate you having me on. 